Hello, my name is Neil Lynch, and I am the Editor-in-Chief of EventMB, and you're listening to the Event Manager Podcast. On this episode, I get to speak to one of my favorite people in the industry, Tahira Endine, and I am joined by the Deputy Editor of EventMB, Dylan Monarchio. We talked to Tahira about various different things, like scary life changes and how sharing those inspires others. We talked to her about joining the dark side of her with her short stint in on the events tech side of the industry. We talked to her about writing about virtual and hybrid events before they were a big thing before the pandemic. We talked to her about intentional event design, which is the title of this episode and also the title of her book that she released in 2007. We talked about how face-to-face creates richer conversations, how not to write a book, which I think is a fascinating topic. We talk about industry designations, which she holds four of, uh, which I think uh, is is high up there. I've seen people with more, but that's pretty high. Uh, we talk about designing a 15-hour marathon virtual site night all night event, uh, which just happened recently. And we talk about the future of incentive travel. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, Tahira. Thank you so much for joining us, being our guest on the Event Manager podcast. For those that don't know you, this is Tahira Indeen. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Tahira Indeen? I mean, everybody knows you, but but tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all, who is this everybody? I feel like I, I'm so lucky because I do have colleagues and friends around the world. So I feel like I know lots of people, but everybody feels like a bit of a stretch. So... Uh, Tahira, let's see. I am a Vancouver-based event designer uh, who has been doing this for 20, like a really long time. Let's just go with that. Um, I love chocolate. I would say that I am an alligator wrestler, meaning that if you have a problem that's really hard to solve, uh, bring me in and I will probably help you solve that problem. And I love anything with bubbles. That sounds good to me. And you've also been named in the top five women in event technologies a while back. You're a top 20 trendsetter in meetings today. You've got a lot of accolades there. I think, uh, I think very my, my new favorite one is smart meetings visionary. I was just like, ooh, that's a good one. I can, I'll try and live up to that. <laughs> awesome. But I know that you, your career didn't start in, uh, in events, right? You had a, another career before that. Um, and I, I'd love I to did. just share that story because I think it's a, it's a great story of kind of reinvention and uh, you know, go into as much or little detail as, of it as you want. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I had a call recently um, from Richard Aaron, who really does, every, everybody knows Richard Aaron, you know, founder of BizBash. And he's teaching a master's program uh, at, the, at, in, at NYU. 
And he is using my book, Intentional Event Design, to teach his master's class. And we'd never met. So uh, he, but he contacted me to say thank you, which was really nice. And then invited me to his class where people were um, using the six and six of the seven intentions to map an event design and presenting that. And that was really fun to watch. Um, but what he said to me was that at the beginning of the book, I tell this, this story that I'm going to tell you. And he said that many of the women, particularly in the class, connected to it because as we hit points in our lives where we have to make changes, it can be really scary. And sometimes just knowing that you, you know, someone else has done it makes it less scary. So I was a hairstylist. I loved, 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 loved. I wanted to do it since I was six years old. Uh, by the time that I was 15, I was taking beauty culture in high school. I graduated with my high school diploma and as a fully licensed hairstylist. And I worked for, I managed a hair salon and I had a great team and I was working for a manufacturer and on an amazing trajectory. And then I started not being able to actually use my arms at work. I would be cutting hair and my hands would go numb. And it took about probably nine or 10 months to figure out that it wasn't just something simple. It was something complicated, which was that I'd actually been born with an extra rib. So it's called thoracic outlet syndrome. But what was happening was two things. One is that as soon as my arms were about 45 degrees out from my body, there was no blood going to them. So of course, holding them up made them not work at all. And then I eventually, when they did the surgery, they found that there was the, the on each side, two separate surgeries, but the ribs had actually grown together. And so that meant that they were crushed, had crushed the nerves. So what I have is ongoing permanent nerve damage uh, in my arms that when I sat down with the surgeon post-surgery and he said, you'll never cut hair again. I just went home and cried for a couple of days. And my then boyfriend was just like, it's okay. You know, we're going to get through this. I love you. And I was like, it doesn't matter. Um, so 32 years later, we're still married. Um, so it's worked out, but it um, led me to change and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought that this little tiny postage size stamped ad in our local newspaper that said event and convention management diploma, brand new program sounded so glamorous and exciting. And so I got into that and that was very exciting to be able to do that. And I'm probably one of the few people that went to university for something and then continued doing it. And I had a great practicum actually. Um, with Claire Smith, another well-known person in the event industry at the Vancouver Convention Center. And um, we're still friends. We're going to go walk her dog on the weekend. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a really great um, transition. And I couldn't imagine now having not had this career as well. That's amazing. What a, what a great story, a great story of resilience. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people find the industry from different angles, but I think that one is unique. I don't think anybody <laughs> else I know has that that particular angle. Uh, and then you've worked in lots of different things, right? You've you've essentially been an event designer, but you did go over to the dark side at one I point. You worked did for... go to the dark side. Yes, everybody's going to the dark side now. Like I feel like I maybe set the trend. I don't know, but now I'm. Back. You were like what eight <laughs> years ahead of everybody else, right? Um, I just wanted, I mean, when we saw it, the dark side, you worked for Quick Mobile, I believe, for, I for a couple of years. Which has now been absorbed into Cvent. Yeah. And and I just want to, well, first of all, I, I yeah, this whole thing about calling it the dark side is funny, but I just want to, I guess, explore that or poke that a little bit. But what made you do that? And, and was it so dark on that side? 
Uh, no, it was great on that side. So for me, I has your I have done a lot of things. So I've you know I've been a PCO. I have worked at a DMC. I've you know been a, in an incentive agency. Uh, and at that, that time, I was on my second round of being uh, I was creative director to DMC and fantastic, loved it. Except I thought you know I really after five years of doing this, if I have to do one more event with a Mountie in it, I will probably poke my eyes out. And at that time, um, I actually was just had an, I didn't have an interview about a job. I had an interview about technology and how it could fit into a program. And from that, I was recruited at Quick Mobile. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was a great journey. And what it really forced me to do that I'm so thankful for now is to really deep dive into technology and its possibilities. And not just from the perspective of Quick Mobile, but of every technology that could impact and led us to creating, you know, we created event camp and we explored what technology would look like and what hybrid would look like. And, you know, as everybody started talking about hybrid and virtual being so new, um, people started to remind, remind me that I'd written quite a lot about hybrid and virtual four years ago based on information from six years before. So the transition when we had to pivot, you know, although my day job now is working for the Society for Incentive Travel Excellence, meaning travel, um, when we had to pivot, 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 pivot um, to virtual, it didn't scare me because um, we knew how to do it. So it's, um, and I love now, there's so many amazing platforms out there and seeing people that we know uh, who have so much talent and so much knowledge creating new platforms and uh, really extending their reach deeper into what those platforms can do is just it's wonderful to see very interesting and i remember you had a really interesting dilemma when you were working at quick mobile which was you were organizing events for them <laughs> so you were a planner but nobody would accept that because your email was quick mobile so everybody assumed that you were sort of a supplier in the industry and you're like but i'm booking venues i'm planning events i am a client but I mean, that must have felt a bit weird. Is that, do you think that that's, I don't know, something that needs fixing? You know, it's probably what drove me back. <laughs> so uh, it is, um, it, it's, a, it's a challenge because there's many technology companies in the world that have very huge event and marketing departments. And those people really are some of the, planning some of the biggest company, you know, most events in the world. I was listening to a different podcast because there's, you know, there's more than one out there. Um, but it was a woman from Google. And how many events they do per year? Want to guess just for fun? A few thousand probably. 65,000. So a little more than I would expect. <laughs> so just because somebody has a at technology company address, whether it is an, an event supplier or a larger technology company, uh, it is we're doing events, you know, there, there's a lot of events that are happening out there. And so we need to be able to differentiate that a bit better. It was, um, it was very challenging for me because I had identified as a, even as a DMC, I, you know, I was buying millions of dollars a year in services. So it was very challenging for me to be, um, I was surprised actually at how badly we treat our technology partners, because honest to God, we need you. And we need to treat you like the gold that you are, whether any partner, you know, for me, it doesn't matter if it is 
a hotel, a caterer, a decor company, a technology company. I can't do an event alone. I can't do any of those things. So I really rely on those partnerships. But it turns out that um, I, I think what happens is that sometimes uh, when it gets feels like it's too much of a sales relationship, people start, to, buyers start, call them buyers because that's what we call them in the industry, um, put up some barriers that are perhaps unnecessary and don't necessarily lead us to be as successful as we could be if we were really looking at it as a partnership. That, that's really interesting. Do you feel that that's changed at all now as no. we're in this pandemic period? No. So tech providers you feel are still kind of bottom of the food chain for the lack of a better expression? Hmm, I don't think they're in the bottom of the food chain. I think now they're the big scary beast that might eat you. Um, because we don't understand them. They feel expensive because it's not a cost we're used to. You know, nobody questions um, that my lunch is going to cost 70, pick your currency, plus 23% service charge, plus um, 8 to 10% tax, making my 70, pick your currency, lunch 100, pick your currency. Um, but we do question that there's a $7 per person charge on a technology. So it's really about how are we rebudgeting and thinking about, you know, for anything, it's go back to, you know, what, so how I approach events is people-centric, purpose-driven. Is the technology going to allow my participants to have the experience that they need to achieve the objectives that my stakeholders have? Hmm. And if it is, then that's probably where my money's going to need to go to be spent. So, you know, it's an interesting, we're in an interesting dilemma with that right now. I think you've raised a really interesting point about the concept of expense and how people reconcile themselves to different, to the value of different things. Given that, you know, you might have a $7 per person expense for technology when just the food and beverage aspect of an in-person event is in the hundreds, what what do you what do you think that um, what do you think that will mean in terms of the longevity of virtual events and the potential for them to replace certain kinds of in person experiences? So a few things that I think about that. So first of all, I think that there is nothing that is a faster route to success than face to face when it's done well, because that is where we have those serendipitous conversations you simply don't have digitally. But I think that there is a lot of um, opportunity to look at the events that you're doing and determine, am I really providing top-down information at this time that where I just need to deliver a message? Great. That is perfect for a digital event. Do that. Use that. Um, expand your reach. You know, blow that up. Um, but, you know, when you're looking for really deeper dive, collaboration, innovation, moving things forward and giving people a little bit more time to do that because the other thing with a live event is once you step into that space, you're in that space. Whereas in a digital event, you tend to be more distracted and we do need to compress information for digital spaces. So it's about taking your spend and spending it in places that make sense. And now that there's so many great digital platforms that you know do allow us to have fun, we can go and we can play games and connect with each other. We can go and we can go into breakout rooms, although it's not quite the same as being at a round table live, you can still create those interactions. And again, when you're just really just delivering information to people, you, they don't need to travel for two days 
to just go and have information delivered to them. You can deliver that very in very meaningful, still emotive ways through video now. So it's going to be about choosing the best way to spend to meet your purpose. And I don't think it goes back to that. Why do we have that event? Well, because we always have that event. Great. So it requires us to be a little bit more thoughtful and we don't always get the time and space to step back and be strategic in that. So it's a whole bunch of levels of understanding that have to happen. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I kind of wonder about the, the collaborative aspect, especially now as everyone has moved to a work from home context. I mean, most people are working from, most people I know anyway, are working from home now um, in our industry and in, in, in most sort of like non-retail oriented industries. Do you think that the ability to collaborate effectively virtually could just be a matter of training as now most people's like daily jobs happen remotely? Yes and no. So, I, I mean, I have successfully planned multiple events this year collaboratively with teams across the world. Um, our, our executive team for site is a, across the globe. Your team is across the globe. Um, so we do know how to do it and we, do, and we know how to still create effective outcomes from that. But it's not, you're not you're, I feel like I'm going to have less, I don't feel like, I know I have had less memorable laugh out loud conversations online than we would ever have had in all of the, and, you know and Miguel and I are a good example of this in that you know we have never lived in the same city we see each other at very odd touch points over the course of a decade um, but we could still remember conversations that we've had about I'm going to use the example of breakfast um, and and how that ties into developing a relationship um, that can become um, a relationship based on more trust uh, that allows us to then take those, bridge those next steps for collaboration. So it's it's possible for sure. And I've worked on a very successful project for the last year that kind of saved my sanity um, with people that I've never sat down in a room with. And there's four of us and the three of them only actually sat down they all live in New York for the first time last week together um, and then told me afterwards so I wouldn't be jealous. So it's, um, you know, and that is kind of, and, and even they said, you know, we had a, we didn't have a different conversation, but we were able to have a richer conversation because we were face to face. And, you know, that's, I'm not going to say that's going to save our industry because that's not our, our industry now is with 7 billion people and more limited travel options. Um, we need digital and virtual in order to for the world to continue because people still need to have information education um, and conversation so and it's a a way to do it as things move into hybrid do you think that it would make sense for people to do that sort of top-down information gathering aspect of things virtually like in a virtual component and then reserve the in-person experience for for the collaborative aspect so that you don't end up using the time that you're spending in person for that classroom setting, one-to-many kind of dissemination of information? Yeah, I think that's the ideal scenario, honestly. Um, but I think that that's been the ideal scenario since hybrid has been around, which is, you know, solidly more than a decade. Um, it's just we're not really good at that. We're not good at asking people to, hey, watch this video and read this book before you come to this meeting so that we can have a meaningful conversation. Um, and whether you apply that to a board meeting or a um, how do we build the next great spaceship meeting, 
Um, sometimes getting people to do things ahead so that you can have a richer conversation um, can be a challenge just because we all have limited resources of time being the biggest. Um, yeah, and that, is, and that, that is particular model doesn't require hybrid necessarily, right? That can just be, here's some great content. Make sure you consume this before you come to the meeting and then make the most of the time at the meeting. Kind of thing. That's definitely true. Hopefully, as we get better at designing content specifically for consumption online, you know, as, as, the, as people within the event industry sort of learn that skill set and develop that, it'll be easier to, uh, to navigate that. I also wanted to know what you think about, I mean, I thought what you said about serendipity and, um, and that as a boon of meeting in person. Uh, I, I'm curious to know what you, what you make of those like 3D environments that try to replicate, <laughs> you know, try to, try to replicate the experience of moving through a 3D environment in uh, moving through a, 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 an in-person environment. A convention in center, that kind of thing. Space. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think when, when they work well, they're awesome. When they don't work well, when it's glitchy to get in, when you bump into somebody, but then it doesn't let you into the video chat, um, it can be as frustrating as standing outside of a circle of people you want to talk to live. Um, but when they work, they're great, you know, and I think that I really like... Um, that feeling of, look, I've moved through this space without a glass of wine in my hand, but moved through this space virtually in that, with that sort of mentality. Um, and then I found friends I wouldn't have found otherwise because I didn't even know they were here. Oh my God, it's so amazing to see you. Um, it can be, that is, is something that, um, as those continue to evolve, I think will be really good. And I think, you know, we've had some really good examples of using, um, not even, the 3D ones that you're speaking of, but also even just 2D video networking, but where you're sort of randomly placed with people. And one of my favorites was from our global conference this year. Um, one of um, one of our board members, you know, so we were doing sort of two or three rounds of four minute networking. And so he got to me on maybe his third round. He's like, oh my God, I just got an RFP. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, you don't know how they're going to always work, but sometimes they work really successfully like that. So. It's, um, good there's good opportunities. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So I wanted to just make sure we mention the book that you wrote, The Intentional Event Design, 2017. Um, tell us a little bit about it. And um, I wonder if you could think, you know, is what you wrote more relevant today than ever? Or did it kind of, did it age well, I guess is probably what I'm asking. And, and how does the pandemic kind of reflect on it? Yeah, you know, when I wrote, here's how, here's how not to write a book. Um, somebody, I was looking for something I'd written. I couldn't find it. I thought this is really annoying that I can't find something that I've written. I'm going to put what I think is important about events arrogantly into one book. Um, not so arrogantly because that's not really how I think, but, um, somebody, then somebody said to me really snarkily, well, you know, to have a book, you have to have 50,000 words. I was like, 
okay. In my head, I was like, that's a lot of words. I have no idea what that means. So here's how not to write a book. Take everything you've written in the last two years and dump it into a Word document to see how many words it is, which was (laughs) about (laughs) 80,000. Then take out all of the stuff that you don't ever want to speak about or be the expert on. So then you're left with like a lot less words. And that's where I started. And I sent it to a friend um, and she said, you know, it's really good. She goes, but my brain hurts. Like you need to make it friendlier. You need to tell more stories. You need to um, maybe map it out a little bit differently. And that's where I I took it and gave it six, seven intentions. And, you know, it's definitely not, um, it's not a beginner book. It's not your checklist book. It is really designed for someone who has been doing events for a while or is at their, even their nation stages, but really wants to understand how to design better for the human experience. So it's really about, you know, it looks at how do we take time for design? How do we embed technology? And the technology is AI to wearables. It's not, here's how to use a specific technology. It's when your client says, I want a chatbot, you need to know what a chatbot is. Um, you know, I looked at the different and evolving roles and, you know, how we need to have digital producers. And so in, it surprisingly was ahead of its time in that way. And is super current, you know, I mentioned my Richard Aaron experience earlier and he he called it prescient. And then I had to go look up what that means, but (laughs) it's, um, you know, but he looked for six months for a book that he could use to teach a master's in event management class. Um, and that, and this is what he found is that it covers off what is happening today. There's a, you know, I only put six checklists in one is emotive words. One is hybrid events. Um, you know, so it talks about how to bring your brain to a meeting. Uh, it is, I'm a big advocate of the most people you should have it around or six um, because otherwise you can't have a good conversation with an entire table. Um, it turns out that actually if they're sitting six feet apart, probably four people are going to have a great conversation. Um, you know, so it's, it's actually turning out to be more relevant. I went back to look to, to say, you know, should I, you know, what do I need to update based on right now? And of course there's always going to be things to update, but what I actually realized is that it's, it's in a good place. So I'm not going to write about how to put six people, six feet apart apart and wear masks because we have 4,000 articles on that. So, um, yeah, I think if your writing is always about concepts and ideas and and thinking about things and, and to me, that doesn't really get dated, right? I mean, the examples might get a little dated or whatever you're using, the tools you're using might be a little dated, but good design thinking doesn't get dated as far as I know. And I've got the book on the shelf. It's on my, on, on my, uh, list of books that I definitely refer to. So, uh, so it's good to hear. And, and now you're working for site, the society of incentive mm-hmm. travel excellence. You have four different acronyms and after your name, which is, um, which is really interesting. I have to admit, I don't know what all of them mean. I also have CMP and DS uh, after my name, if I wish, but there's also CED and CITP after your name. What do those mean? And I, I, I think at least one of them is connected to site. So forgive me if I don't yes. know exactly yeah. the all yes. the things. So CITP is our Certified Incentive Travel Professional designation with site. And it's, it, it's essentially the meeting planner, you know, like CMP is for meeting planners. The CITP really is for 
a more senior uh, incentive travel professional. It was a really hard exam. I'm not going to lie. I just wrote it last September. Um, and it was like, it, it's good because it pushes you to think about, um, as writing your CMP pushes you to think about all aspects of meetings, it pushed us to think about all aspects of that. The CED is probably one of my favorite, which is the certified event designer. So there is mm, less than 200 CEDs in the world. And that's the program that came out of um, Rude Janssen and Rolf Friesen and, and Dennis Lutcher and the work that they did um, with the event design handbook. Um, and we see that quite a lot around the industry. It's one of those designations where a lot of people start it but don't finish it um, mm -hmm. because it's about a six-month process. Um, but it really is about that design thinking and prototyping and testing things. And, you know, certainly in my role with Site this year, we've, tested and pushed everything you know it was when when I took this job um, I knew it was going to be hard I report to two boards so I report to 30 people <laughs> essentially who all have opinions on uh, what successful events look like and who all are very seasoned they've got great ideas and they're great people to bounce things off of um, but I, it, you know it took a year to gain trust um, and to be able to really start to basically imprint some of the things that I believe about events and, you know, how they need, they need to be sustainable. They need to be thoughtful. They need to create and promote spaces for dialogue. Um, they need to provoke thought. We need to take risks with our content. Um, and when we did our global conference in Vancouver at the beginning of 2020, so a full sort of year into the job, um, it was really successful and they really saw like, oh yeah, this, this is good. This can work. You know, we, we did crazy things like put a breakout in the middle of the foyer with people with headsets on and every hotel salesperson was like, oh my God, I have a new way to sell breakouts. Um, you know, so really able to just test and push ideas. And then of course, pandemic happened almost immediately after that. And so when we had to flip to digital, having my DES digital event strategist, which I didn't do last week. I did it six years ago, I think. Um, so again, something that I really understood this space, but then all of a sudden we had all these new and exciting platforms to play with, which has been really fun. Um, and was the boards around you, were they scared? How yes. did they take it? Yeah. Yeah. Because they were all trying to do it in their own businesses too. And you know that, you know how hard it was those first four to six months of people trying to figure out how to do virtual. So um, and for many of them, you know, they, like I said, they, everyone has a senior job that they're good at. And then you have to all of a sudden learn this new skill and sell your clients on a new idea, you know, and Dylan, your questions around, you know, what are we, what are we doing? What are, what makes sense, um, right now is everyone, we have to all learn that together. Um, you know, the reason I keep these letters up on my zoom is just to make, you know, to just create a little comfort that it's okay because I know. You know, I know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm not always going to get it right. We're going to make lots of mistakes. Um, you know, the last thing we just did was. <laughs> I wanted to hour. ask you about that 15 hour <laughs> event. And I think it's, I, I would kind of just remark saying, I see a trend in events getting shorter and more condensed. And you also talked about producing things tighter and, and more, you know, short periods of time. Why do a 15 hour <laughs> event? And, you know, That's how did it work out? Question. So. When we, so it was to replace Site Night Europe. So Site Night Europe and Site Night North America are events that we typically do two hour events or three hour events. Um, and they're a fundraiser for our foundation. Um, and 
we did them both digitally last year and they were two hour events. And what I realized after we had done our global conference where we applied all of those shorter content principles and <laughs> shorter durations and all of those things in January, when I'm this at was Frankfurt, online, you mean the, the, the latest global conference online? Yeah. Yeah. So, our, yeah. so our latest global conference is online and followed all those good practices and principles um, and made sense and worked really well. And then when we got to IMAX Frankfurt canceling, you know, I'm lying in bed thinking like, good God, what are we going to do? And I thought, well, a two hour event is not going to work and it's not going to work because we have chapters on six continents across every time zone and you'll never find a time that works for two hours. And more what I thought was this pandemic is not over and it's not going to be over in April as much as we all will wish and will it to be. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about site is that it's a very strong community. We have lots of members who are plus 20 years, um, but what we also have is members who really support each other and who are kind to each other and need each other, especially now. And so the only way to touch them was to do what started out as a 12 hour event. And so I called it site night all night, although that was only all night for some people. Um, it was definitely all night for you because I think you started at what, 1 a.m. your time? It's really early ridiculous. for me. Yeah, 4 a.m. for me, noon in London, you know, so... Then our team was in Istanbul, so that we worked with to produce it. So we were never on the same time zone. And so the idea was that we gave, we have 28 chapters. Everybody got 15 minutes of fame. And I said, don't send me a destination video. We've all seen them. I said, send me extraordinary people sharing extraordinary stories from extraordinary places. You know, if you take your, if you want to show us how you would do an incentive trip at the Taj Mahal, take your kids. If you want to show us how you cook an amazing Mexican meal, bring your mom. Um, because we, we, we work with people and let's tell the stories of our people and they did. And it was fantastic. And I, but as we started to put in the content and we were able to develop some really brave, wonderful content around, um, DEI, around women in leadership, um, around technology and, and, and move and weave that through. So everything that happened was two minutes to 15 minutes long. And then we brought in three great hosts, um, one DJ and then um, Garrett and Sky, who both brought, you know, a unique energy to, to the event and helped us tell those stories and weave everything together. And for me, the whole time flew by. I'll tell you the first video that came in was from our China chapter and they opened, they were going to be the opening video to the event they opened their video with Wuhan. Okay. And I was like, okay, let's do this. You know what? This is, we're going to tell a story of what it looks like right now in our world and where we're getting to. And they closed their video with a really unique location in China that most people outside of China would never have been to. Um, and how you, some of the things you would experience on a program there. And it was excellent. Um, it was 14 hours by the time we mapped it out. Uh, it ended up being 15 hours. So my lesson was if you're going to do a really long telethon event with no breaks, because I thought people are adults, I don't need to build in breaks. They can figure themselves out. Um, and turns out they, should... they don't, 
No, they were, you know, it turns out that I thought, so my, my metric for success was a hundred people on for the entire time. We had between 175 and just over 200 on for the entire time. Um, and we had people who came on thinking that they'd watch for 15 minutes and stayed for six hours. Um, the, uh, our Australia chapter, uh, they said, you know, sit night all night, like, great. That's it's all night for us. We're not going to be up all night. I was like, fair enough, because we also have three hours for you from eight till 11 in the morning, um, that you're going to be able to come on and see the newest research. And there'll still be people around from SoCal and Texas and, you know, places like that. And cause for them, it's four in the afternoon. And, um, <laughs> the woman who said that got on at nine at night, went to bed at two 30 in the morning. and was back up at eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, it was just people stayed, they talked, they chatted, they danced, they played. Um, it was just really, really fun to um, to see it happen. And the time flew by and we we laughed the whole time. The, our crew was just laughing the whole time because it was just really fun. So would I do it again? God, no. I hope we go back to live events that are 15 hours long. Um, but did it work for building the community, which was the metric that we had. And yeah, it really, really did. Well, it sounds like you have a ton of great content that came out of that event. Mm -hmm. And I mean, granted 15 hours, I, I mean, I, even, even the shows that I love binging, I don't know that I could sit there for 15 hours (laughs) and watch them, (laughs) but I wonder where where that content lives now. Is that content on demand now and being able to incorporate it into your other programming and campaigns? Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the ones, um, especially the DE and I and the women in leadership, uh, we actually pulled excerpts out to use for site night because when we started to record those, they ended up becoming longer content. So I pulled out mm, four to 12 minute excerpts to use. Um, but all that content is now online, um, uh, on the site YouTube channel. And it's fantastic. The stories, like I laughed, I cried, I had chills. I mean, it was just it was really good content. So it's, um, I felt incredibly proud of every member who contributed, mostly members, but um, everyone who contributed to the content because they took risks. You know, we, with Dee and I, we worked with the team at Accor and, you know, we had um, an interview with Kendall Gender, who represents the Fairmonts in Vancouver, and who talked about being your authentic self um, in drag, which was great. Um, and then we had a woman who told stories of traveling with her now 22-year-old daughter, who's missing part of her fifth chromosome. So she'll always be a little bit like five years old. Um, and some of the experiences that she's had because of that. Um, and it's just really, uh, it made us really think about how we need to be more empathetic in life and in work. And it's, that's what we do. You know, we say with Trent, with especially incentive travel, but any travel that, you know, it's building and bridging cultures through transformative travel. There's what's going to change us. And it's why we miss travel. And it was, um, it's really special. Well, that sounds, I mean, in some sense, it sounds quite evergreen. How have you seen viewership of that content? Um... We've just launched it on on demand. So we've just launched it. So yeah, there's definitely, you know, it's just gone out really through our membership. So, but people are going back and watching it. Um, and the feedback is really positive. And, you know, we'll continue to, to have it out there and to use it. 
And we'll continue to build on those themes going forward because they're, those are, uh, unfortunately, in many ways, those are evergreen themes. We need to think about how we are empathetic and equitable going forward. Yeah. I wanted to uh, touch a little bit on the incentive travel side. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that the pandemic has been a tough time for any incentive travel company. Uh, I, I see a lot of companies doing the virtual site visit, that kind of thing, but obviously that's not generating the kind of income that they would do with, with, with real events. But how do you see the future of incentive travel? You know, we're at this stage where we don't know exactly how it's going to work after the pandemic. We have uh, on one side, we see the future of work kind of question. Our office is coming back. You know, you could argue that incentive travel would be more important than ever to bring people together because they're all working from home. But at the same time, I also see this tendency for for people to want to be quite relaxed at work and work in different ways. And, and I have this feeling that when I go to a really unique place to travel, I want to be there with my wife. I want to be there with my family. I don't know if I want to be there with, you know, the stereotypical Bob from accounts or whatever it is. Like, I don't know if that's the type of experience that I want to do if I get to do something really amazing. How do you see that? And, you know, is, is there kind of a, a balance there somewhere? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, all those things you said are so correct. So I think for me, honestly, the most successful incentive travel programs we see are ones where somebody can share them with somebody who's significant to them. And so having, you know, an incentive program where you're with just Bob from accounting, um, those still happen for sure, but they're going to be a slightly different. And I think as we travel is going to be that new luxury, you know, because you're going to have to have a different kind of passport and you're going to have to follow different rules and it's going to be a little bit more inconvenient for a while. Um, but we all know that when we get somewhere new to be able to experience it, uh, especially when you can personalize it and have, you know, a greater variety of options and you're not just sort of shepherded in large groups from place to place, but can go and experience things with people that you like or love. Um, and that that has been given to you as a reward, I think is really critical. And you know, one of the things we're looking to do right now is to figure out how do we, how do we find those people out there who've had those in, and you know, we're, you're doing this in different ways too, Miguel, but how do we find the people out there who have been transformed by a meeting or incentive travel experience and hear more of those stories? Because we know anecdotally they happen all the time. You know, when I said I couldn't imagine not having this career, what I couldn't imagine is not having the travel and the amazing opportunities that have come with this career. And when we can take people places and open their minds and their hearts to new cultures and watch that happen, that's, it's just such, again, it's just, that's why we do this. You know, we do this because we want to see people enjoying what they do. Well, I'm sure from a company's perspective, a large part of the rationale for incentive travel trips and corporate retreats is, I mean, as much as we would like to go to those places with our loved ones, the the point in many cases is for people to be able to connect with their coworkers and bond with them and have a more meaningful connection with them. And I suspect that for a lot of those coworkers who don't build you know, luxury trips to Iceland into their annual <laughs> expenditures, um, you know, having that be on the company's dime is a huge incentive 
uh, that they, you know, they might be able to enjoy destinations that w- they wouldn't otherwise have access to. It is a huge incentive. And I think, you know, and there's lots of research that we've done and the joint research that we've done with um, the Incentive Research Foundation and with um, FICP, the Financial Insurance Conference Planners Association, um, shows that, yeah, 100%, you know, and then anecdotally, I talked to someone this week who last year their company um, gave them instead of their, you know, the year before they'd had a trip to Mykonos, this year they were given $25,000 in stocks and shares. And so she renovated her kitchen and she's like, like, I love my new kitchen. She goes, I would have rather been in Greece. You know, that that trip had a lot more meaning and the power of incentive travel is, is well documented. You know, I think the first trip was like a train trip across the U S in 1911 was the first recorded incentive trip. So it's not a new, um, idea, but when it's used well, it's extremely powerful. Interesting. Great. And I think we, we're kind of starting to wrap up. I have, I have two kind of questions that I'd like to ask you uh, uh, here uh, to wrap up and I'll ask them both. So maybe you can think about them while I'm asking. One is um, any kind of technology or innovation that you, that you have an eye on uh, that maybe is coming out now or, or that you're seeing in the future that, that could be really exciting. Uh, and the other is we, we, we love to ask our guests who we should interview next on the podcast. So we'd love to have a recommendation from you as uh, a next guest that we should have on the podcast. Oh, my goodness. There's so many people you should have next. Um, the... We'll try to get through all of them. But, you know, we're just asking <laughs> right? for one as to, to kind of get that serendipity going. Yes. Yeah, so the, um, from a technology perspective, uh, I, what I like is that there is um, just such a robust community building abilities now in, in the platforms that are coming out. And we're getting better at using them. And the data isn't going to go away. So there's not one specific one. I would say more the category of technology would be anything that can tie people together in a way that um, allows them to feel more connected when they are working from home so that Uh, community platforms over event platforms necessarily or not necessarily instead of but that that kind of sense of using a a platform as to hold a community yeah i think that that's you know at the end of the day we're people who are watching these things so as much as we want good content we we want to be connected to other people um but that's just my opinion um People to interview. From someone who's been on the dark side and has come back, I think it's always valid to get your opinion. <laughs> yes. Um, it's always it's always what we wrestle with, right, is how do we build community? Um, yeah, there's, if, gosh, there's so many people to talk to. Um, who would you like to interview? Who would I like to interview? Do you know who I think would be super fun to interview is Kevin White. <laughs> Um, I did a planning in a pandemic course with him, uh, at the end of last year and he actually made that fun. Um, but he always makes me think a little bit differently. Um, and you know, other people that do that are, you know, rude always makes me think differently. You always make me think differently. Um, Anthony Vade always makes me, you know, pushes things. And then probably my very favorite, if I was picking one person, I'm going to pick one person for you is Andrew LaCanienta. And Andrew is a PhD in experience design who teaches at Cal Poly. Um, his class presented to our young leaders last year ideas for creating their conference that completely shifted their thinking. 
and that was student presentations. Um, he is fundamentally one of the people who is changing um, the approach to events at a student level, which gives me so much hope for the future of event design. Great. Very powerful. Yep. We'll definitely invite Andrew and all the other people you mentioned. You have a list of maybe five or six there. So we'll try to we'll try to invite everybody and hopefully they'll they'll want to come and have a chat with us. Tahira, thank you so much for joining us today. I think it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast and it's been a pleasure to have you as a friend. And uh, I hope you uh, listen to the podcast, tell everybody about it. And I wish you all the best with all the events at site and anything else that you do. I think you're, you're going to be very successful. So my deep appreci appreciation for you being with us today. Well, thanks, Miguel and Dylan, for having me. It was enjoyable to be here. It doesn't even feel like it's six in the morning. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much. So today we are joined by an extra special guest, an extra guest, Nick Borelli from uh, All Seated is here with us. Nick, thank you for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have you uh, with us on this episode. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm super excited to be part of uh, in any way to be part of this podcast series. It's uh, it's got just a killer lineup of the smartest people. So to be uh, find any way to wiggle into that is, uh, is certainly my pleasure. Awesome. And we just heard from Tahira and Dean, uh, the head of events at Site, who shared with us a really insightful episode about the intentional event design, or or that's sort of the, the bigger title that we're talking about. Uh, and I know you had you were listening in, Nick, and and I wanted you to pick out kind of your bits that really kind of uh, rang true with you. And I think uh, you're also in a similar way to Tahira. You've also moved over to the quote unquote dark side, right? Is that something you'd like to unpack with us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's. I remember when Tahira did that, and uh, it was at a time where I think uh, prior to the post COVID tech boom, uh, so to speak, that we've had. Um, she was kind of a big part of the, um, I guess, the last time that that happened, like almost 10 years prior to that, when when um, technology and the apps were becoming something that was um, not just a novelty, but almost a requisite, um, really heralding that era in. Uh, and I remember the content that she was working on and, and, and I was just like, wow, what a smart move to be able to have somebody with a network, with authority, um, as opposed to someone exclusively from the tech space who not only doesn't speak the language, um, also uh, everyone's guards up. So, I mean, she definitely is the herald of what this era has seen more and more of, which is uh, accelerated uh, trust due, due to bringing on people who already have that. And do you feel that's like me. that's sort of what you're bringing to all seated? <laughs> kind of sounds autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, obviously, I see the parallels, right? And I, uh, I'm, you know, maybe I'm vicariously putting some of that in there. But uh, I follow Tahira, you know, period. Uh, and uh, that move, you know, in the back of my mind was one that was like really smart. Um, I think that uh, if you know, if I'm if I'm doing anything smart, I don't know, but I know where I'm. Uh, able to do the most good right now and honestly like the bridging the gap between uh, live events and uh, and virtual events uh, in as much as not necessarily just the technology but the empathy um, that's something that I think that I am intentionally trying to 
uh, bridge, you know, even as much as like the, the time that I've spent over the last few years has been uh, much of, uh, based around the idea of building personas, uh, both for um, B2B within the events industry and also attendee personas with uh, some of the work I've been doing over the years with Merits. And uh, that's all rooted in empathy. So, and I think that that's maybe one of the missing components and why there's this, this concept of the dark side. I think that tech hasn't come in as a disruptor empathetically, it's come in a disruptor as a disruptor, you know, like it's Darwinian, like we're, we're, we're here, so you should embrace us. And live events has said, well, well, hold on here. Um, we, you know, we don't want to embrace anything uh, that isn't at the heart of what we like, which is, hospi- in my opinion, hospitality, people, humanity, you know, all the things that it, it's perception of it. So it guards up. And uh, tech doesn't understand guards up. It just understands we're, we're better. So embrace us. Mm. Really interesting. They're sort of what, delivering their tech like a, like the Sermon on the Mount, kind of like, <laughs> why aren't you following? Yeah. This is so much better. It's just, yeah, exactly. Like eye for an eye, guys. You, you know, it's not really that great. Like there's, there's better opportunities. Um, yeah, why doesn't that sell itself? The reality is, is that you have to have a, a, a base that really wants it, right? Um, and I don't know if... Um, I've heard this in a couple of conversations already. I don't know necessarily if event uh, professionals have always wanted technology. Uh, I think they've they've wanted um, and protected the thing that they believe is their special thing, which is you know that that humanness, um, the, a lot of the intangibles, and I think that that's fought against um, the wholesale embrace of tech uh, data at at the level it should have been years ago. Uh, I think it's relegated uh, event people to a silo outside of a, a sales and marketing of their own doing. Um, and also think they're right too. There is something special about live events and there is something intangible. Um, it's just very difficult in a world where um, I have money to spend um, as a marketer and I have to look at where I can get my ROI and where I can get my return. And I can I can prove to my CMO on a spreadsheet that this digital marketing tactic works and this live event, I go, it works. You know, it's it's hard to get on the spreadsheet. Um, even if I'm a believer, the CMO, you know, needs to see the numbers. And mm-hmm. that's where events have really faltered over the years. Um, so I, I want to try to figure out what I can do to help bridge that gap to be um, both, um, uh, you know, have a marketing mind and an event mind. And uh, I've, I've actually had the chance to do that the last couple of years with, with MPI. Um, with the event strategist uh, certification course uh, and, and try to give the skills to um, planners in order for them to um, get, uh, get the recognition that they really deserve. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because I remember one of the, I, we were t- in the conversation with you here, we were kind of um, talking about how budgets are reconciled and people were looking at food and beverage bu- budgets being in the hundreds per person while where technology budgets can be seven bucks per person. And uh, she was saying it's sort of in defense of the face-to-face meeting that there's no faster way to do that business. But I suppose based on what you're saying, it seems like there's a, a discord between the real practical benefit of being able to fill sales pipelines in person and then the ability for that to translate into ROI metrics for the C-suite and your other stakeholders. So do you think that virtual and the pandemic in general has kind of changed the game in terms of the onus to demonstrate that ROI um, for live events? 
I, I think it, it's going to contribute for sure. Um, and I also think that hopefully what happens is, is that um, it uh, becomes another point in um, the journey and live events has a more specific place in that journey uh, is kind of the exclamation point towards the accelerated trust. And the virtual event lives in a place of sustaining that trust or building towards it. I think those are the two directions uh, with the live event kind of being in the epicenter of it. Um, I, I do believe that like the the uh, ROI that you can see from the, the virtual event uh, ends up being a little bit easier to prove because of the dollars spent uh, are, are more on um, uh, marketing parlance as opposed to uh, F&B. I mean, uh, food and beverage accelerates trust. It's true. Breaking bread is a thing. However, the quality of the food vis-a-vis uh, -vis the quality of the, of the lead um, becomes very difficult to suss out mathematically. I think it could be done. I don't think that the, the hospitality mind is one of that hard ROI. And I think that's the disconnect. The disconnect is, I think you could run the numbers on that, you know, truly. I mean, if you really wanted to do it. Um, and I think that like some level of that is, is probably something that we should work more towards in order to make events, not just something that when you have a good year and you do them, you continue doing them, but in fact, knowing the level uh, of the value of it in order to know if you should be doing it more, uh, differently, et cetera. And I think that like, it just comes down to the mind of many in the basis of face-to-face -face events is one rooted in hospitality, in my opinion. That's just how I've, I've been trying to see it over the last year. And virtual events slash marketing have a little bit more of the DNA of, of hard ROI um, and um, of um, probably pipeline mentality. And I think the hospitality gene is smart because it knows if you treat people well, they'll take care of you. And that's true. Um, but the difference is, is that that's sort of binary and that doesn't work. You have to know scale. You have to be able to know how to scale. Uh, and you have to know if you can uh, adjust the numbers in order to uh, get more return on what you're doing. And just the sort of this works mentality um, isn't enough, I think. And I think maybe that's where virtual events will push them. Um, mm -hmm. I'm seeing it in, in other places too. I mean, you see it in uh, certainly in retail, the idea of the, the sales experience happening uh, in, a, in a, about a black and white way online. And then the experiential high touch uh, and customer lifetime value uh, being expressed in, in the brick and mortar. Um, I think that some balance of that relationship will likely come to come to be over time um, obviously at an accelerated pace that it would have prior to COVID, uh, in, in events. Hmm. Well, one thing I want to touch on, I mean, you said, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the real value face-to-face -face events being, uh, that kind of breaking bread in-person chemistry ability to have the tangible, you know, sense, sense, sensory experience. Um, and I wanted to know since Tahira's session is, you know, basically about intentional design, how you think that factors into uh, the design for a product like All Seated, which is a 3D environment that tries to replicate that virtual space, because there's definitely like a running 
uh, sentiment and also one that we've published a few times that you should treat the virtual environment as its own thing, create a dedicated experience that takes advantage of all the virtual has to offer. So, you know, data rich, data rich uh, matchmaking services, um, AI based recommendations, uh, UX that leverages like familiar design elements and formats so it's easier to onboard people. But all seated has, you know, quite powerfully gone in the opposite direction to try and create that in person, recreate that in person experience. So, can you shed, shed some light on, you know, the philosophy behind that approach and how you're trying to kind of bring together the best of both worlds in a virtual space? Yeah, I mean, you are right in in two areas very keenly. One, it's against all of those other um, sentiments that are very popular. And second, that it is uh, ideological and, and philosophical as far as where it's coming from. Um, one is that when the I, I'm very much of this mindset too. When the marketplace is going in one direction, um, if you're a blue ocean person, you know you you step back and you say, is there room for something else? As to not have to be you know a red ocean player and have to just work on benefits and uh, features. Like, is there room? Like, I ultimately I've said this out loud a number of times, which uh, is my belief in in, in you know. Uh, the belief of, let's say, an, an enough people at the organization is that uh, I believe that we are a niche solution. I also believe that the niche is potentially huge um, and even outside of events as events are seen. Um, I, there's a lot of events and the majority of events that happen are not your traditional events. They're your internal events. They're your HR events and that kind of thing. And that's another area that we're we're going into that will be um in a world with more and more people who are not physically in the same place, a huge, huge opportunity for us. Uh, but when it comes to specifically the traditional kind of B2B style events, um, the, the mindset is that um, we are hopefully offering something um, that is that sustaining uh, or, or um, getting you excited for the face-to-face -face event. Um, and that fits with it. You know, the core business of All Seated over the last eight years has been um, providing tools for uh, for event professionals to design face-to-face -face events, to face live events. That's the majority of our clients are in that space. We are very committed to that. Uh, and I've always, you know, just in my personally in my career has always been committed to uh, intentionally designed uh, experiences uh, and uh, live ones at that. Um, we believe we're complementary. Um, that said, the majority of the events that we're doing right now are in these spaces that are very similar to real spaces. In fact, based around and based on uh, 3D scaled uh, versions of our clients' venues uh, from the all-seated ops and vision uh, products. That isn't always the case and may eventually not be. But for right now, people are, are looking for the familiar. They're looking for something that they know how to navigate intuitively. We're in this a period of time where um, giving people um, something that they know how to do with as much friction as we get from people saying, well, my, you know, my attendees, they're, they're 55 and they don't know how to use a keyboard. And it's like, well, probably not. I think you're probably most of the time people underestimate people for starters. Um, but I will take the point that there's, there's technology friction. We're trying to remove some of that friction by giving them a familiarity in spatial familiarity before we push the B2B crowd specifically into a more unfamiliar territory of which um, we're, we're perfectly um, uh, set up to give them. So an example would be, 
we had a client uh, that come to us and say, can you build us a yacht, uh, just a, a whole three-dimensional yacht where this happens in this room and this happens in this room and has this aesthetic, but the design, intentionally designed experiences is that you start everyone off looking over at the rooftop, looking down at this uh, yacht. Uh, the next phase is that you're on the deck of the yacht and then on the Ave choices that you can go from uh, either to this theater room or you can network with people here, you can have conversations in here, but it was part of a thematic alignment with uh, a an internal campaign that they had. Uh, and we said, yeah, we can build the yacht. Of course, no problem. Now that's not the typical experience that majority of B2B people have in trade shows and conferences. Therefore, um, most of the planners are not gravitating towards that kind of thing. But moving forward, when um, I think people uh, are more used to navigating these types of environments, I think that we're going to get a lot more requests for designing things whole cloth. And certainly the, the, the few that we've started with as far as the SaaS clients who have a space that is their own uh, to be able to put events at, at will, those will, those are and will continue to be probably wholly designed from nothing. Uh, so that is a little bit less from the just giving them reality and just doing a faux reality, but in fact, designing a reality for them, which hopefully bridges my, my uh, interest into trade shows to take on whole on activations, uh, where instead of just a virtual 10 by 10 space, which frankly is, uh, you know, it's, it's what they want, but it's also uh, as someone who like wants to push things uh, from the planner side to us, it's not that exciting, right? Like they, it could be so much more. I want them to be able to see those 10 by 10 booths as doorways, doorways into their own worlds, um, but which we can create. Uh, and as we build up our inventory of these worlds and these platforms and these design spaces, uh, we'll have a much richer opportunity to give people um, something that is outside, like clearly outside of um, what their expectations are. So it's less of a one-to-one uh, faux trade show and more of a something of its own kind. That's fascinating. And I think what you were saying about underestimating the tech savoir of a particular age group is like quickly becoming uh, like a serious, a serious error to kind of labor under because I'm, for example, in my late thirties, I grew up with video games. This is not at all an unfamiliar like right. <laughs> scenario for me to be in. It's very much it's, the next generation. It's of, doom 1993, right? Like it, it, yeah. it's, it's honestly like a 30 year old uh, UX as far as familiarity, in my opinion. And yet we still experience people with that at one level. And I think it's just fear of technology that is um, maybe um, bred into planners' minds because um, the technology world and the event world are diametrically different psychologically. One uh, loves failure. One uh, can't stand even the slightest failure. Um, one never fails in technology as long as you you know keep keep making money. Uh, you just keep pivoting forever. Uh, and the other one uh, feels like they have a pass fail. They have a specific day, and if that doesn't happen at that day. Um, then you didn't do your job and tech, there's no day there. Every day is, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen today in my day. Uh, you know, we, we, we can go a completely different direction, you know, after this conversation don't know. Right. And that's exciting for the, you know, to some extent marketers, I think some are sit in between, uh, and, uh, the mind of technology, uh, but for planners, like they would much rather tell you that it is has less excitement, less challenging uh, from a from a standpoint of um, challenging to the attendee, 
um, and would they're take planners. They they want to make sure it works. They right? think they're God, and they're, <laughs> by the way, they're asked to be. You know, so it's not their fault. They're asked to be people who have to know everything, like about food and and paint color trends. Sure. But and you'd only get ridiculous. one chance to get an event right. Like right. you know, it's it's yeah. like the doors open. If you're yeah. not ready, everybody's going to leave. They're not going to come in, right? Yeah. So I mean, just just to build on that a little bit, how do you? work with planners to make them more open perhaps to doing yeah. something that's a little out of their comfort zone because you, i think what you're saying is if you can go a little out of your comfort zone you can do things that are way more interesting that people get way more excited about but you have to be willing to take a little bit of a risk so how do you yep. work with planners to be able to do that outside of the comfort zone and also potentially a higher lift if we're talking about designing whole new environments right yeah yeah and that depends uh, exactly the, the higher lift on the on the whole new environments really will be for the organizations that um need that right and there, there's always those organizations there's tons of them that that want to be able to have that brand storytelling control uh so that there while it is a heavier lift for some like an association isn't going to do that likely um but a lifestyle brand would um, once we build up inventory of things like this, it becomes far cheaper and far easier for us to skin those and, and, uh, and do variations of those in order to offer those. And so as we go, like, I know what we will have once we have more and more of a catalog of these options. Um, but when it comes to, um, like, I guess, are you, are you like asking like how we sort of guide them? Um, my, my answer is, uh, I try to tell them why, why, you know, why I think that they chose us and I try to get it as concise as possible. So I, I would say, um, if you design an event with, uh, in all seated expo, you're going to want to embrace freedom and choice more than you're normally comfortable with, um, that whatever you plan for your attendees know that they have their own plans and they're more valid. A friend of mine who uh, is a planner for MGMA, uh, which is a, a medical management uh, association uh, based out of Denver, uh, she, she talks about designing for human collision. So the idea is to design um, opportunities at every uh, path for there to be a, a choose your own adventure, um, how you define success um, to be at every corner. That's what I try to tell people is, is, is give them choice at every, every opportunity, a single track, um, event for us is we can do it, but it's like kind of why, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that you need to be able to sit down in a room and we've, we've talked about this before too, but <laughs> sit down in a room and, uh, if you don't like the presentation, you should be able to vote with your feet and go somewhere else and have something to do in order for every minute of your time on the platform to be valuable because quality of engagement is the thing that I think is missing in most metrics for virtual events, um, and options of how that is, as opposed to quantity of engagement, which obviously there's a lot of data on, uh, and that's how most of these things are scored. But, uh, I really believe that the, the choice and freedom bit will allow people to, um, uh, as I've done a lot of attendee personas, know that there's not one successful path for an attendee. There, there's quite a few. So give them choice, I guess. That That's sense. great. Nick, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this intentional event design and all the other things that Tahira talked about. I think this is an excellent addition to that conversation. 
and uh, I hope to see you again on the podcast with us very soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.